Uh, amen. Thank you, Kevin. Well, I am Tim Rogers, lead pastor here at GPC. Uh, again, thank you for being with us this morning and joining us online if you're doing that online this morning. And Happy New Year to everybody. Y'all look pretty fresh and, uh, and sharp here in this new year, so that's great. Um, hey, uh, I, I'd like to take you in your mind's eye with me to a year that none of us have ever lived in, and that is in the 50s. I mean the 50s with no 19 before it, or 18, or 17, or 16, but the 50s. 54 AD, if you lived in 54 AD, we need to talk <clears throat> afterwards. 54 AD in the place is Rome. The context is a, a violent and uh, political, politically up, you know, upturned uh, world, murder plots, assassinations. In 54 AD, a new emperor just takes power. He's 17 years old. Would you love to serve under the leadership of a 17-year-old emperor? His name, some of you know, we know him now as Nero, but his name is longer than that, and I can't pronounce it, so I'm not going to try. But the way that Nero got to power in 54 AD was because of the workings of his mom. I believe, if I remember right, her name was Agrippina. And as strange as that name is to us, and it doesn't show up on the list of any baby names that anyone would choose right now, Agrippina doesn't really roll off the tongue. She evidently was a very beautiful, very powerful, a very influential woman who married into the royal family for the express purpose of being able to ultimately get her son in power, which she was able to do by marrying in several years earlier and then killing the family of the people that she married, which is one way to do it. The problem is, of course, when you do that, what goes around comes around. Her oppressive and strong leadership in her family created a kind of domineering role for her, and she ended up trying to pull the puppet strings of Nero, young Nero as a 17-year-old. In the first several years, there was all kinds of turmoil, but ultimately Nero rejected her and her leadership, being counseled by many people to do away with her. Believe it or not, he killed his own mom. He tried to take her from one city to another in what turned out to be an inflatable raft, only to intentionally sabotage it and have her drown. That didn't work, so he sent his own army to stab her to death in her home. He also was upset with his wife, and so he had her exiled and killed, by the way. So here's Nero, now 10 years later in a world, if you've ever seen any of those old um, gladiator movies or TV shows where there's all kinds of blood and violence and political upheaval and assassination plots and all that going on. That is the world that this young 17-year-old inherits and then leads. Ten years into his reign, he's now strong, 27 years old. He begins to, believe it or not, people in your country don't like it when you kill your mom. You begin to lose political, uh, you know, political strength. You lose integrity. And Nero was losing the, the respect of his people. And then in 64 AD, something very important happened at the, what they called the Circus Maximus in Rome. There were several shops, as you can imagine, just like in our stadiums of the day today. There's all kinds of people who, who you know, have pop-up shops or ta taco stands or the taco truck comes by, right? There's all kinds of little shops around the Circus Maximus in Rome. Well, in that area, 
there began a fire one night. And we don't know who started it. There's all kinds of legend around it. Some say Nero himself started it because it was near his presidential, if you will, his emperor, emperor's palace. Some say he wanted to clear the way for more glory for himself so that he could rebuild a bigger palace. I don't know what happened, but the fire raged. History says anywhere from five to nine days. It's a little unclear. And large, large sections of Rome was destroyed. It was worse than the Colorado wildfires that we're dealing with right now that evidently got put out by snow last night, which is great. But it was such a political weight for him to bear that in all that he was dealing with, there was people, you know, accusing him of, um, you know, sitting there on his palace watching the fire and actually singing to the gods, thanking them for the chance to rebuild his palace even bigger than it was. And so he decided the best play for him to do was to, to blame certain people for the fire so he wouldn't have to take the heat. And the, the most convenient people to blame were the people who many in that time thought actually were a new religious group who, believe it or not, practiced cannibalism, which is exactly what they said you and I would have done just a few minutes ago, eating the bread or the body of someone and drinking the blood or the cup of someone. Early Christians were accused of cannibalism because of things like communion. And so Nero decided to blame the fire of Rome, the great fire of Rome on Christians, which was a very popular thing to do. And he took his anger and his injustice and he applied it to Christians. And so Christians were then <laughs> accused of this and they were wrapped in animal skins and fed to the, the wild dogs to be eaten alive. Christians at night then were taken and they were killed and their bodies were impaled on posts and they were hung in his gardens and lit on fire as torches so that the people could be entertained by the burning corpses of Christians. And it was in 67 AD, just three years after the great fire of Rome and all this persecution was coming heavy on the Christian church, that the leader of the Christian church, who we know as Paul, who wrote at least half of the New Testament, Paul finds himself under the thumb of Nero and this Roman government. Paul finds himself in prison now for the second time. And as he's in prison, this prison is described by some people this way. It's described as a dismal underground dungeon with a hole in the ceiling for light and air. His one friend, Onesiphorus, was struggling to find Paul in prison. He wanted to come and visit him, but he couldn't find the hole in the ground, basically. He was there in chains. He was cold. He was lonely. He was sad. He was under the, the weight of what would be impending execution. Paul knew that he already had his first trial, and it was just a preliminary trial, and the second trial was going to be the trial in which he knew he was going to be found guilty. He knew the end was near, and his legend would have it, at least, that he was actually executed. He was condemned to death and beheaded on what's called the Ostian Way, about three miles outside of the city, just a little bit later on. So in 67 AD, Paul is sitting there, cold, lonely, in shackles, in an underground dungeon, looking out through the ceiling, through the hole in the ceiling, and he is wondering, in the impending weight of his own future death, he's wondering, will this movement be able to continue? Will this Christian thing work? Who will, the most important question for him, is who will lead this now? Who will be the new face, if you will, of Christianity? How is it that this Christianity will continue? And as Paul is sitting there, his mind goes to someone in particular. 
who will serve as the next face, if you will, of leadership for this fledgling Christian movement that is under intense pressure from a violent regime. And what I might think of, and maybe what you might think of is this, and that is like, who would be, if I'm sitting there, like, who would be the perfect candidate? <laughs> who would be the, the perfect one to step up in that space and lead a young, moving, you know, religious sect, if you will, to the next level? Who would be the perfect choice for that? And if we're honest, there's no such thing as a perfect choice, is there? <laughs> I, I think what Paul began to think about as he was sitting there in his dungeon is a little bit less about perfection and a little bit more about something else. And that something else is what I want to talk about with you this morning. And what was on his mind, he actually wrote for our benefit and for yours to look at. And here's what I think went through his mind, and here's what I think we realize too, is that there's something different, and that's this, that, that there's something that succeeds, that sincerity actually succeeds where perfection fails. Instead of looking at a perfect leader, I think Paul began to look at a sincere leader. Let me put it a different way for the sake of our series called Endure, that sincerity actually endures while perfection fades. And I think you've had this experience in your own life with a grandparent, a teacher, a coworker, a coach, who you look back on in your life and they've influenced you, not because they've been perfect, but just because they've been genuine. They've been real. There's been no deceit there. They've been at peace with themselves and at peace with you. They've been sincere. And as strange as this may sound, of all the character qualities to look for to carry on a fledgling movement, sincerity is at the top of the list. It is for Paul. To show that to you, I want to take you to a letter, an ancient letter that Paul wrote while he was actually in that dungeon. It's this last letter that we have recorded of him. It's called Second Timothy. And in 2 Timothy, we're going to be here for the next several weeks. I want to invite you, if you have a Bible with you, to turn to this letter that Paul wrote to Timothy, who was going to end up being the next leader of the early Christian church. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's one in the chair near you, but just flip through to 2 Timothy chapter 1. We're going to start with just the introductory verses this morning. As you get there, I just want to tell you a little bit about Timothy, as cool as his name is, by the way. Um, thank you. Slow, slow roll on that one. His name is pretty cool. But a little bit about Timothy. Paul knew Timothy for 15 years, uh, so he knew him for a long time. He's had some history with him. There's been some ups and downs with him. He's appointed him as a leader in times past as a teacher. But lest you think, all right, lest you think that Timothy is awesome and just the perfect guy for the job, you, you need to know a couple things about him. Number one, he's incredibly young. Our best estimates is at the time of writing where he was going to take over and Paul would be beheaded just shortly after writing 2 Timothy. Timothy was only 30 years old. If you're not yet 30, 30 seems like super old. I get that. But if you're past 30, and at least a few years past 30, you look back and you think, imagine a 30-year-old leading what turns out to be a worldwide religious movement at that age because he's incredibly young to face the persecution of the Roman Empire that's coming down heavy on this religious sect as they see it. So he's very young. He's also, believe it or not, prone to illness. Paul refers to his frequent ailments. And in 1 Timothy, he recommends to him, Timothy, you need to drink a little bit more than water, my friend. You need to add a little wine to your diet because your stomach is all messed up. I know that. That's my translation, but that is in there in 1 Timothy. 
Timothy was also apparently, to the best of our knowledge, the way Paul writes about him consistently is that Timothy was shy and introverted. Paul had to encourage him multiple times to be of good courage, to be strong. If you, if you have to do that, this tells you something about the character qualities of Timothy. So our best understanding of Timothy is this, is that Timothy was young, sickly, and introverted. And so when you think about who can lead a new movement, boom, isn't that perfect? Let's get a young guy we don't think has the qualities yet. He's often sick, and he doesn't like to talk to a lot of people. Let's get him to lead the movement. You have to ask the question, I think Paul did too, how could he possibly replace Paul? What is it that would take someone who doesn't seem to be qualified or ready to be able to be the next person to lead this movement? And we get that clue when we begin to read 2 Timothy chapter 1, just the first five verses this morning. So here we go. Let's check it out. Paul is writing from his dungeon here he says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, in keeping with the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my dear son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. I'm going to pause it there. I'm going to do verses 1 to 2, and then in a minute we'll look at verses 3 to 5. I just want to highlight one thing here, and that is... In the first verse, we see Paul identify himself as an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, but then he says, in keeping with the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. I don't want to go too quickly past that. That's so important to me, and I think so important to Paul. This promise of life is in the context of a promise of death that Paul is expecting. Like, Paul isn't sure, as he's laying there in the dungeon, will Christianity live? Will it be able to carry on? Certainly, he knows that he's going to die. And so, to me, it's very powerful when someone who knows they're going to die writes about and talks about the promise of life. Mm, that is encouraging. And so, he says there's a promise of life that is in, in keeping with Christ Jesus. Christianity was hanging in the balance. We don't know if it will survive. We certainly don't think Paul will survive. And he decides to write, you know, what's fundamental to Christianity is that Christianity brings life over death, which is why we took communion this morning. It's the fundamental tenet of Christian faith is that Christ came to die for me and for you, and that in that death, he brought life. And so the promise of life, when you think about what Christianity stands for, where it intersects with your life, where it intersects with hopelessness or despair or discouragement or questions about the future and wondering if there can be a better or a, an improved or a changing or a transforming Christianity brings a promise of life. This promise of life, I need to be honest, doesn't always mean that there will be change in this lifetime. I mean, we, we have to be honest with this and talk about even people who are Holocaust survivors or people who were in slavery in the United States of America back in the Civil War days. For some of them, in fact, for many of them, they did not live through their experience. But yet Christianity will still say there's a promise of life that comes not in this life, but in the one to come, which is why I've said before, and if you've been here a while, you've heard me say this, that for Christians, hope is not anchored to progress, but to justice, that one day God will bring justice for all because there's a promise of life that comes. Even if that doesn't change my external circumstances today, if it doesn't heal me from my disease, if it doesn't change my family dynamic today, there is still a promise of life that is characteristically fundamental to the Christian faith that promises a life 
in the future that is anchored to justice more so even than to progress at times. And so when Paul writes this, I think he's writing this because it's so important. It's on his mind. He's going to die. He knows he's going to die. And he's not sure if the movement will die. And so he says, in keeping with the promise of life, as if he's trying to remind Timothy, there is something characteristic about Christianity that is about life, that is about hope, that is about a future, and that that is in Christ Jesus. And then he goes on in verse 3 to write this. He says, I thank God, whom I serve as my ancestors did, with a clear conscience as night and day I constantly remember you in my prayers. Recalling your tears, I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother, Lois, and then in your mother, Eunice, and I am persuaded now lives in you also. That's all I'm going to read this morning of this letter. But a couple things in verses 3 to 5 I just want to look at with you. Beginning in verse 3, he says, I thank God whom I serve as my ancestors did. <laughs> When I first read that, I just read through it, but let me ask you this question. How many ancestors are there for Christianity at this point? There, there are none, right? Paul didn't have a Christian father or Christian grandfather because this is first generation Christian, right? There's no ancestor Christian. There's no second generation yet. Christ would have been crucified about 30 years ago by the time Paul writes this. So when I read this at first, I'm like, that's interesting. But then I thought further about this. I'm like, this is actually an incredibly powerful statement. When he says, as my ancestors did, I would say, Paul, your ancestors did not worship Christ. Not in that specificity. They didn't understand that Christ was not crucified yet by the, when your ancestors were living. When you're talking ancestors, you're talking about your heritage and your family. That didn't happen yet, Paul. What do you mean by this? And this is a powerful thing that Paul takes this historical reality of what is the Jewish faith. That's his ancestors. His ancestors are Jewish. His ancestors are steeped in the Pentateuch, the Old Testament. They're steeped in the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the old way of relating to God through the law. That's his ancestors. And he says, I thank God whom I serve as my ancestors did. Meaning that I am now tying this new movement to an old movement. I want everyone to know that what is, seems at stake is the, the life of a small little fledgling new faith group. And maybe these people will live and maybe they won't. But he said, I want to put it in context for a minute. My ancestors worshipped this God. The fulfillment of their belief is that the Messiah would come. He has come. We are continuing in the line of a historic faith that for generations upon generations upon generations, people have worshipped this same God now in flesh is Christ. And so young Christians, take heart. You are not new to faith. You have now experienced the fulfillment of a historic faith, and you stand in line of people upon people upon people who have worshipped the same God. The expression of him is different now, and so take heart. Your faith is rooted in history, not just in belief. Christians don't just have faith in faith. They have faith in Christ and what he has done on the cross. And so Paul immediately takes us to a deeper level when he writes this, as my ancestors did. It draws Christians into the broader story 
of God's redemptive work from history until this moment. And then he goes on. He says, night and day, I constantly remember you in my prayers, recalling your tears. I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. Now, I ask the question at the end of verse 4, why, what is it about Timothy that would make Paul be filled with joy? And this is where I get this idea of sincerity, because quite frankly, Paul says it himself. He says, verse 5, I am reminded of your sincere faith. This is the answer to the question, why does Timothy bring Paul joy? The answer is because he has sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I'm persuaded now lives in you also. Sincerity is, of course, different than perfect. Sincerity is even different than strong sometimes. Sincerity has that idea, and it sounds like what you and I know in, in our culture today. It is what we think it is. It's without deceit. It's, it's honest. It's being at peace with yourself with your limitations, with your weaknesses. It's Timothy knowing, yeah, I'm shy, I'm introverted, I get sick a lot, <laughs> I'm young, but I still believe. I still believe. This is why Paul said, don't look at, let anyone look down on you because you are young, but set an example, Timothy, in life, in love, in faith, in speech, in purity. I don't care about your age. I don't care about your other character qualities, but I'm looking at your sincerity, Timothy. You keep coming back to this. You keep coming back to this. When I think about sincerity in this context, I had to ask myself the question, and I hope this is helpful for you this morning, and that is, what does sincere faith actually look like? What does it look like? And in the context of just these five verses, is they're simply introductory. And so if this feels like an introduction today, it is, but there's something more to it that Paul gives us. When I think about what sincere faith looks like, I looked at four qualities that Paul writes about in just the opening five verses. The first is this. Sincere faith looks like this. It's aligned, I would say it's aligned to a promise. When he says in verse 1 that, as he puts it, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, in keeping with the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus, there is a faith that is aligned to that promise. That when you are going through, and here's the encouragement for Timothy. Timothy, when you're going through a season where Christianity is going to be pressed on, where you're going to be pressed on, you're going to be encouraged to, to listen to the narrative of this movement will never survive. You will never recover from. You will never regain hope. You will never find a future that is better. You will never be able to reunite with. You will never be able to hope for. The alignment to the promise of life is fundamental to Christianity. And this is what Paul invites Timothy to. Your sincere faith is about an alignment to a promise, and so I want to encourage you this morning. If you start the new year wondering and feeling the weight of loss of last year, you've lost a loved one, you've been dealing with health crisis, you're wondering about the future of our nation, maybe the future of your family. You're wondering if things will ever restore in your relationships, whatever it might be. There is a promise of life that is in Christ, that is just part of the fabric of the hope of the gospel. And so I want to encourage you that sincere faith says, I don't need to be always cheerful and hopeful and always be bubbly. I'm not asking for bubbly, but I'm asking for a life aligned to the promise of life. There's a promise of life that is in Christ for all who believe in Christ. Secondly, it's rooted in history. Sincere faith is rooted in history. It's not just rooted in 
faith. And we've said it before that Christians don't have faith in faith, but they have faith in Christ. They have faith in the resurrection of Christ in particular, that there's a historic reality to the faith of Christians. And here's, let me take this a little bit further, that sincere faith as rooted in history means this, that whatever questions that you are developing around the authenticity of Christianity need to be addressed and should be addressed. That if you're in school right now, if you're later in life right now, wondering about your own existence and what you've done, you're maybe disheartened by things and you're rethinking where you're at. I'm hearing a lot of conversation, and maybe you are too, about people who are deconstructing their faith or reforming their faith. I hear that over and over and over again. And I have all but love for people who are in that process. Nothing but that. Because there are significant questions that we must address if we're going to have sincere faith. We can have a superficial level of faith if that's all we're going for. But friends, you and I both know where the rubber meets the road. If Christianity, if our faith isn't rooted in history, if it's just rooted in faith, it's not strong enough. Allow yourself to embrace the questions and the gray of some of the questions that come from what faith will drive into you. Because Paul says, I'm going to worship God as my ancestors did. He's tying us right back into history. There are tremendous historic realities to where Christianity is rooted. Christianity isn't rooted in hype. It isn't rooted in a surface level anything. Christianity is rooted in a historic event. And therefore, any historic event is fair game for questions about how it all works. What does it mean? And I have my doubts, and I have my wonders, and I have my worries about this and this and this. Ask your questions and seek answers, because sincere faith is aligned and rooted to history. Thirdly, this that we see, sincere faith, I would say from these opening verses, is supported by a community. That there are people, and Paul mentioned some of them, it's the family of Timothy. But there's a joy, there's a recalling, there's a longing for, there's a hoping for, there's people who are in Timothy and Paul's life who support them. And so as we think about a sincere faith, the faith needs one another for growth. I need you and you need me. That as you start the new year, a sincere faith says, I'm not going to do this one on my own. I'm going to be supported by a community in the way that I can be. I've said it before here. We're starting new groups here at GPC this year and starting in the new year. We're having some meetings about that right now. If you have an interest in being supported by a community, just reach out to us here at GPC. Send me or, or one of us an email and we'll get connected with you to help you be more connected to the degree that you would like to a community that will help you. It's supported by a community. And finally, this. Sincere faith is bigger than my limitations, and this, I think, is so critical for you as we begin the new year. Timothy, young, introverted, um, sickly young man, right? Perfect guy to start to lead a movement, right? As you begin to think about your new year, I love New Year's resolutions. I love new goals and vision and all that, and I'm all for that, all right? That helps get us motiva motivated. It catalyzes action. It creates growth and movement and all that kind of stuff. It's good. But in context, please, friends, don't aim for perfection, <laughs> aim for sincerity. As you look to grow in your own faith and you look at maybe some areas in which you've been weak, some areas in which you need to grow, recognize that it, there's a beauty, there's a beauty to my limitations and a beauty to yours. Paul writes earlier in one of his other letters, he says, it's God's power is made perfect in our weakness. It's, it's in our weakness that we see the light of God shine. It's in the cracked vessel that we see the light coming out from the inside. And so as we think about our own faith, I want to encourage you, as you strive to know God and strive to, to, to live for him, strive to be a better parent and a better husband and a better mom, and, and if you're single, to be 
even more intentional in your singleness this year, in whatever aspect of life you find yourself in. I just want you to know that your limitations are also a gift to you. They're not something necessarily to be put away with and totally overcome. Certainly there's areas for growth. But what we see with Paul is that he's using someone, he's calling someone Timothy, who has all these limitations to a great role of influence and leadership. And so as I think about this, this is why I say that, that sincerity, if you will, endures, but perfection fades. No one needs you and no one needs Timothy to be perfect. Goodness, that's too heavy a load to bear. Christianity doesn't need that. They don't need any perfect leaders. They don't have any perfect leaders. But what Paul is writing about is what's going to endure and what's going to help make this movement go forward is the person that I'm grateful for because they have a sincere faith. They have a sincere faith aligned to a promise of life, rooted in history, supported by a community. And finally, as they go forward, they are seeing the beauty of that kind of faith that just moves them forward, even in the spite of all of their weaknesses. So friends, sincerity, sincere faith endures, not a perfect one, not a perfect one by any stretch. And that's what Paul had to write to Timothy. And I hope as we begin this new year and see what God can do for you and do for me, that our aim, our interest right now is an enduring faith that angles more for sincerity and honesty. And rest in peace with who you are in the middle of all the tension and struggle that we experience inside and outside. Because sincerity endures. Perfection, it fades. And when Paul was writing to face his impending death, he said, I'm looking for someone with a sincere faith. And that brings me joy. Will you pray with me? Our good God and Heavenly Father, thank you for the chance to be here together this morning to pick up this old, ancient letter written at an incredibly critical time in the history and development of the church and of Christianity. To step into that moment where a lot hung in the balance, real uncertainty about whether this thing would endure or not. Help us not to miss the beauty of this moment of imperfect leaders, of imperfect people, and of now, a movement that we have seen endure. And I would argue it endured not because everyone has been awesome, who's led and served, but because people have attempted to move towards sincerity, to remove hypocrisy, to remove deceit, to anchor our faith to history, to align it to a promise, to work together in community and to be honest with our own limitations and weaknesses. And so as we strive in this new year, help us strive toward a sincerity of faith that highlights you and the grace of Christ over ourselves. We love you. We thank you for the time we can share in this new year. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.